please turn with me to Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 6. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, and that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Please keep your Bibles open with me uh, there to Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're in our fifth week of the History of Redemption sermon series alongside the Bible reading plan that can be found at BibleTogether.com. I do hope you're uh, making use of that resource that's available to you there, as well as a number of the other resources that are pointed to there. Uh, we are in the fifth week and um, of 16. Uh, we're, we're not even a third of the way through, and I'll tell you, there has been so much impact in my own life. I, I actually put this plan together. Now, let's be clear. I did not put together the plan of redemption, all right? <laughs> that was neither my idea nor my execution. But I put together the Bible reading plan by which we can get to know it a little bit better uh, almost two decades ago. I've read it many, many times, and I can tell you again, there are two things that are happening in me uh, at present, and I, I hope it's happening in you as we're working our way through the scriptures together, that first of all, I'm recognizing there is so much in this story that I need to know that I do not know. Like I know it, but I don't carry it around as, as that which would aid me in a love for my God in Christ. That's the first thing that's happening uh, in me. And secondly, a great desire to know the Lord according to his word. Those are the two things that are happening in me. I hope that they're happening in you. I hope that they even happen this morning. The story that we have before us opened in Genesis 1. It begins at the beginning, of course, with the beauty of creation. After the making of heaven and earth, God is, with his special creation, man in his image, male and female, he created them. God is fashioning a people for himself in this Adam and Eve, the first human creation. But Adam and Eve, this special creation of his, made in perfection, placed in this paradise garden, rejected the good relationship that God created and fashioned for them. And and he set, they set up their own self-rule in opposition to God. They, they were shaking their fist at God, saying, on our own, we can live. We have a self-rule, a self-governance by which we can find that which is good, by which we can find life. The reality of Adam's self-rule is so important to the whole of the story. Hear me again. The reality of Adam's self-rule is so important for our understanding of this story. It is what has gone wrong with the universe. And it goes wrong with you and I 
every day in rebellion against our God. Adam's self, we prove ourselves to be truly the children of Adam in our own declaration of self-rule and rebellion. So much of the remainder of the story is actually God graciously bringing a people back under his own rule, not to serve him as slaves, but rather to enjoy him as father, the way of the, the original design. Remember that Adam was made in the image of God. How does that work? Well, that means that God is his father and, and Adam is his son. It was the design for creation. And what we have in the remainder of the story is God working this out, creating a people not to serve him as slaves, not to be the God of the mountain, to bring their sacrifices, to just live another day underneath of the, the, the thumb of an angry God, but rather to enjoy him as their generous Gracious Father, this is the heartbeat of the covenants of the Scripture, as the Lord will repeatedly make explicit as he says things like, Jeremiah 30, you shall be my people, and I will be your God. That is a statement of steadfast love and mercy. But the story of mankind that follows Adam's rebellion the sto- our story, the story that we have to tell with our own self-rule, this is the, the sort of autobiography of mankind, is actually a story filled with disaster. I mean, just look at Adam's first children. Cain kills Abel, his own brother. And the story continues. The great-grandson of Cain, Lamech, brags about his own murder to his two wives, by the way. Disorder upon disorder. There's a complete degradation of humanity leading to the destruction of the flood. Disorder upon disorder and destruction upon destruction. That's our story. But even after the flood, the rebellion against the way of the Creator, it actually continues, and and it culminates in the pride that leads to the scattering at the, the Tower of Babel. This is the story that we've been reading and giving attention to over these last many weeks. And then we come to Genesis 12, and there's an interruption in the story. There's an interruption that, that comes in the form of a call of Abraham that disrupts the disordered descent with a promise of blessing and hope for the whole of the earth. God interrupts the disorder with a promise of grace. We have a story, and God steps into that story, and he changes the narrative plot structure rather than destroying and scattering, which is actually not something God has to do to us. That's just something we do. Rather than destroying and scattering, God is actually making and gathering a people again. Genesis chapter 12. And before you think that the call of Abraham is just an isolated local event narrowly for the establishment of an ethnic set of people with their descendants of Abraham, we go to Galatians chapter 3 where we have this mystery of Israel being revealed to us. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 7 it says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. So the scriptures, you know, the spirit who inspires the word 
who, who authors the plan of salvation, has recorded in the Scriptures, knowing where it's going, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. I thought the Gospels were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, it turns out you can add to that Genesis chapter 12. When the the Spirit preaches the Gospel to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we have the gospel already, and it's actually been there from the beginning of creation and through the promise that comes in Genesis chapter 3 of the crushing of the head of the serpent, now appearing in, in Genesis chapter 12 with the preaching of the gospel to Abraham. Go to Genesis 12 and see if you can see the gospel there. The remainder of Genesis is the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob leading to the Exodus. Do you know that? Genesis, a story that runs with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it leads us to the Exodus and and the book of Exodus, the the account of Joseph and the preservation of Abraham's descendants in Egypt, God's gracious provision, and the story of a rescue out of Egypt that we call the Exodus, recorded for us in that book of Exodus. And the, the story moves forward. God is establishing a way of blessing and a means by which a people might know and worship God. You remember the image, the the, the reality, that our story is one of disorder and disaster. But the story that God is interjecting is a story to call a people to worship him. Even though in our fallen condition, we belong in a world of disorder and degradation. God, having called the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob out of Egypt, the descendants known as the sons of Israel or the Israelites, God, having called these descendants, he brings them to worship, which is the end. This is where God is going. This is what God is calling the people to worship, the enjoyment of the glory of God in his presence forever. He brings them to Mount Sinai. God reveals the the divine order in the Ten Commandments, and he reveals it to them. And and God reveals the order of worship. And God reveals to this people an order for their lives as a nation together, as a a real established people. And most importantly, God establishes in the midst of his order for worship how an unclean people can worship the holy God what we looked at last week, Leviticus chapter 16, the day of atonement. How can an unclean people whose story is one of disorder and degradation, how can they gather to worship the holy God? Atonement, that's how. And so now we come to Deuteronomy. God has brought the people through the wilderness to Moab. And now, having come out of Egypt, wandering in the desert, they come to Moab and they're about to cross into the promised land. And Deuteronomy that we have here is a book of covenant. And our passage this morning is a call for the people to commit themselves to God's covenant as they are about to enter the land. A call to leave behind their story and to adopt for themselves, the story of their God as revealed in his covenant. 
Let's pray together that we would receive this, that we would come to understand, know, and believe. Heavenly Father, this is our prayer. First, a prayer of thanksgiving. Thank you that you have spoken. Thank you that you have not left us to our own story and our own self-rule, but you have interrupted, you have put down the rebellion, and you have made a way to restore rebels to your perfect kingdom by grace through faith in Christ alone. Lord, I pray that as we come to understand Deuteronomy, as we come to understand this covenant hope and promise, Lord, that we would come to understand Christ, who is that fulfillment, who is that hope and that promise. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding and that you would most importantly, not only that we would know, but that we would love, that we would, by your grace, love you, and so live. Thank you, Lord. This is our prayer before you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps the most important verses in Deuteronomy were not actually in our scripture reading this morning. I actually thought about having them read instead. Arguably, the heart of the Pentateuch and God's covenant with the people of Israel is actually Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll throw it up on the screen. I would encourage you to turn over to it and mark it if you don't have it marked already. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. We read them at the beginning of our service this morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Love is the center of the commandment and not some broad, generic disposition of love, but a specific love of God that is the only means by which obedience is possible. Every other obedience is no obedience, for what God has commanded is a love of God, a desire for what he has has revealed about God in his law. What are the Ten Commandments but a revelation of, of who God is? What is his way? What is the design for his image on earth and in humanity? And so the only way by which we can obey that command is to love him and his way. What is needed is not a renewed commitment to obedience. What we find very quickly is what is needed is a new heart. I have a a specific purpose in choosing our passage this morning in Deuteronomy 30, Deuteronomy 28 through 31, and perhaps even a couple chapters on either side actually form a whole unit. If you go back to to Deuteronomy 38, you can just look at the heading there. Deuteronomy 38, it begins with this heading in, in, my, in my Bible. It says, blessings for obedience. Yours probably says something similar. Blessings for obedience. Deuteronomy 38 begins by enumerating the blessings awaiting the people for obedience. And remember, obedience begins where? Begins with a love for God. This is Deuteronomy chapter 28. And then... Deuteronomy 28 continues in verse 15 and following with curses, which will surely come for disobedience. So we have the promise of blessing for those who love God and keep his commandments. And we have a promise. Do you understand that? Are you with me on this one? I love the idea of God's promise of blessing. 
I like to talk about it. I like to think about it. I like to go and search the scriptures for words of blessing. But those are not the only words that are spoken, and they're right next door, and they ought to be read together. God has promised curse. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that that is part of God's covenant of steadfast love and mercy? A promise of curse which will surely come for disobedience. Deuteronomy chapter 29 continues by recounting the history of God's covenant of grace and the hope of blessing and severity of the curse. Hear that again, there is clarity that the covenant will result in two things for the people, blessing and curse. And here we are at the beginning of our passage today, Deuteronomy 30. Look at it with me. It says something that's astounding. Blew me away the first time I actually had eyes to see what's here. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you. So here he is. This isn't like some future date sentence. This is God explaining in the covenant the way things are going to go down. The first verse of our passage this morning presents the issue that's at hand. When these things all come upon you. So there it is. It's not going to work. The curses are going to come upon you. Do you see that there? It doesn't say, if you happen to manage to find yourself in the position where disobedience happens, like in that possible eventuality that you find yourself in the second half of Deuteronomy 28 and not in the first half of blessing, but rather in the second half of curses. It actually it says, when these things come upon you, the blessing and the curses. So he just told you, go for blessing. But when you're cursed, <laughs> here's what's going to happen. Essentially, verse 1 is, it's not going to work. To work. The people, having heard all the blessing, are going to pass right over the blessing and find themselves in curse. In other words, while there is the promise of blessing for obedience, the people are not going to obey. Now, we know that. Like, we, we have access to the rest of the story, and many of us have given attention to the rest of the story. It turns out that that's actually true. There is equally a promise of curse, and that's exactly what the people experience. So God has shown the people clearly what is good, He's given them the law, which is nothing less than a pathway, not only of obedience, but of blessing, and yet the people aren't going to walk in it. They know what's good, and they're not going to walk in it, and he told them so. He didn't hold it out as, as a possibility that somehow they are going to actually achieve. He tells them up front, you're going to experience blessing and curse. Why? I, I thought all we needed was education. I mean, isn't that what we're told today? If we only knew what to do, if somebody would only tell us what to do and how to do it, then surely we would be better. Education is, is touted as the means by which we are transformed, even today. If we only knew what was good and how to do it, the world would be a better place. Isn't that true? Well, you don't get a better clarity about what is good than God's covenant. Listen to something that Tim Keller was speaking on Deuteronomy 30, and he, he references a philosopher named Jacob Needleman. And Jacob Needleman wrote a book called Why Can't We Be Good? It's a great question. You ever asked it? Parents in the room, I know you have. Why can't they be good? 
Well, make no mistake, God would ask the same question of you, and you ought to ask the same question of yourself. Why can't I be good? And he says this, the basic point of the book is so obvious, and yet he points out that all the social theorists are writing books about how we ought to live. The therapists are writing books about how we ought to live. And the political leaders are writing books about how we ought to live. But they're all just missing one point. We know how we ought to live. And we can't do it. We know what good is. We know what good is. We just don't do it. You know exactly what I mean here. Like there's some, there's some silly things. There's some, some like low barrier to entry things you could share at community group about things that you wish you did better. And you'd be willing to share some of those things. You know, yeah, I just keep, keep kind of falling off, you know. And there's some things that some of you are very uncomfortable right now because you know exactly what this means. Because you know what good is. And you know you just don't do it. And that's what Deuteronomy 30 starts with. This is where we are. We, we know the blessings. We know the severity of the curse. And when these things come upon you, the Bible, it would seem, is just another one of these books that makes the same error. It's just another therapy book or political book that doesn't work. Because he holds out the Ten Commandments Now we know what's good, and we just don't do it. Is the Bible a book that tells us what to do in great detail, but ignores the fact that we just aren't going to do it? I think that is a real question in front of us. But actually, Moses makes the same point as Tim Keller and Joseph Needleman in verse 11. Look at verse 11 with me. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that we should say, who will go over the sea and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? The command is not too hard. It's not too far off. Moses anticipates Keller and Needleman's point. He knows the people are going to bring an objection. We, we hear all the curse, blessings. We hear all the curse, but it's too hard. We just can't do it. Let's look at the two objections very quickly. Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? What does the Lord require? Does it require some sort of special spiritual divinity? So much of the false religions in history have been an argument that we need some sort of special religious spiritual divinity but that's not true. We can imagine a world in which humans actually walk in what the Lord requires. You can imagine that world. We can even write utopian stories and poetry that imagine a perfect order. I've called you to imagine this many times right here on Sunday mornings. Imagine a world where everyone embodies the Ten Commandments, where no one is stealing, where everyone has a right humility before God, where there is no adultery or murder. I can imagine that. I've never seen that world, but it is a reasonable human world, isn't it? 
And then they object, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? What the Lord requires is not some sort of Herculean quest. Hercules is not the first mythology in history. This actually seems to point to another mythology in which one makes voyage over land and sea to accomplish great salvation for himself and for a people. But it doesn't require some skill set or special feat of strength. It's a normal life. All that God calls you to is to be a faithful husband, a dutiful child, a, a devoted congregant, and an honest store clerk. It's not complicated. It's not the weakness of our body or a failure of our intellect. And now we come to the issue. It's a depravity of our heart. This is what's gone wrong. What we need is new hearts. Moses, in anticipating the people's objections, makes it clear the way of the Lord is not too hard. The problem is not that we can't do it. The problem is that we don't want to do it. What we want is our own self-rule. What we need is for our hearts to be overthrown. We have proven over and over again, we do not step down from the rule of our hearts. We need the invasive force of the Almighty God to dethrone me from my heart. I don't want it. Lord, make me want that. I'm reminded of the Sermon on the Mount. For those who take it very seriously, among whom, of course, would be Oswald Chambers. If you're familiar with him, you know he takes the Scriptures seriously. He writes, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount produces despair, in natural man, the very thing that Jesus means for it to do. As long as we have a self-righteousness, conceited notion that we can carry out our Lord's teaching, God will allow us to go on until we break our ignorance over some obstacle, and then we're willing to come to him as paupers and receive from him. Blessed are the poor in spirit, not the rightly ordered king on his own throne. It's when we see our lives have gone so very wrong that we remember the blessing and the curse that set before us in the way of the Lord. And we see that on our own, we cannot live. When we, see, when we survey the field of what our own self-rule has wrought in our lives and in our community, in our households, in our families, in our places of work, when we look around and we see what our self-rule brings about, then perhaps we might see we are not good. And the Lord, your God, will circumcise your heart. This is the thing. This is where we go. In verse 6, the blessing is promised, the, the curse is promised, and, and they just found out that they're going to experience both, Deuteronomy 28, and a season of blessing, they will enter the promised land. They're going to pass over from Moab. They're going to take the land. It's going to be more difficult because they're repeatedly disobedient, but God will be faithful to establish them in the land, and then they will give way to the curse of disobedience and exile. But that's not the whole of the covenant, and this is the most revelatory thing for me in all of this passage. The covenant is not blessing and curse. 
The covenant is threefold. The covenant is blessing. Yes, it is. The covenant is curse. Yes, it is. And the covenant is restoration. We're called to obedience. We do all the disobedience. And God restores. It's nothing less than the grace of transformation. And it's not merely external transformation. It's the hope of being transformed from the inside out. Notice what will result from the circumcision of the heart. Look at verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Deuteronomy 6 is a command to love God. Deuteronomy 30 is a promise that God will put love into their heart. Our self-rule will never love God. Our self-rule loves, you know, self. That's what kings do on the earth. They love self, and they establish self, and they rule self. They don't submit to another. But the promise of Deuteronomy 30 is a hope that the Lord himself will awaken love for him in wayward hearts. This is the reality of the people. When they enter the land, no one among Israel isn't Jewish when they enter into the land. They are all practicing, following, hearing, and believing people. They make all kinds of confessions before they go over. Everyone knows the laws. Everyone knows the festivals. They know the commandments, and they know the statutes. But the question is, is there anyone who loves the Lord? Do you hear it? Is there anyone who loves the Lord? Is there anyone who knows him and knowing him finds him to be the greatest desire of their heart? And desiring him seeks the Lord in his ways according to his commandments and his statutes. They know his commandments and statutes, and you do too. But is there anyone who loves him so that they follow his commandments and statutes and so live? This is the circumcised heart. The one who loves the Lord will live thus far. The covenant of Deuteronomy has been laid out in terms of blessing and curse, but Deuteronomy 30 includes this third step. It introduces repentance and forgiveness, return and restoration, grace and redemption, which leads us to this, hope for the cursed. You see, Deuteronomy 30 presents very clearly there is curse, and, and there's just not anyone who's not under that. When the blessing And the curse come. I want you to imagine for me. This is just how my brain works. Just step in for for a minute. It's a disaster of a place, my brain, but maybe this will help. Imagine with me a young Jewish man or woman. You're there in Moab. You've heard all the commands and you've heard all the statutes. And now you hear this covenant, particularly the words, when all these things come upon you. And you're not dull like Jeremiah who's heard that many times and didn't hear it. But you're astute and you hear it and you think, oh my goodness. It doesn't matter what I commit to in just a moment with my own will. We have already been told in the framing of the covenant, the curses are coming. And the young man or woman recognizes the most basic reality. I want to be blessed. 
I want blessing, I want it for me, and I want it for my children, but I know me, and I know my weakness, and I know my sin, and I know I'm a man of unclean lips, and I know I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and this just isn't going to work, and Deuteronomy 31 is actually accurate, and I knew it even before he said it, this doesn't work. And you're standing there in Moab, like we're going to go over. We're going to get the land because you said we would. But my great-grandkids, they're not going to be in that land. I'm excited to enter the land of promise, but I know we're not going to stay there. What? But then that young man or woman also knows, tucked right into those commandments and those statutes, because this young man, this young woman is, is paying attention, that there is provision for worship through sacrifice. The heart of the hope and the promise is that they get to be with their God. The heart of the promise isn't merely a land, but God would be with them in that land, that they can actually worship the Lord and know him and love him and enjoy him. And they hear of provision for worship through sacrifice. We studied it last week in the Day of Atonement, and we could study it elsewhere. God does command obedience to the law. He actually does. And he also commands sacrifice for failure to obey. The sinner in real danger of curse gathers for worship and calls out to the Lord in the manner that the Lord himself revealed, that the Lord revealed, if you'll come to me and you make the sacrifice, he brings the sacrifice and he gathers at the day of the atonement and he trusts in the word of the Lord that it's actually true. And he hears this from the priest on the day of atonement, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. And he says, that's it. It's not my commitment to obedience, nor my known failure in disobedience, it is a hope in the promise of the Lord as I go to him. And this one loves the Lord because this one knows the provision of the grace of the Lord. It is his kindness that leads this young man, this young woman to repentance year after year at the tabernacle and then the temple. You shall be clean. The young man or woman believes the Lord and while the command is not too hard on his own, he knows he will fail because of his disordered desires. His only hope is that the Lord will not only forgive, but Lord, forgive and transform this wayward heart. Dethrone this usurping king. The tragedy of Israel is not merely that after they enter the land, that they'll go after, after sin and after idols. There are they're a man of unclean lips and a people who dwell among a people of unclean lips. The tragedy is that they refuse to humble themselves to the Lord at his temple. That's the real tragedy. Sure, as Isaiah says, many trample his courts going through the motions of sacrifice, saying all the right words, but their hearts haven't turned to God in repentance. They're not only sinners, they're unrepentant, and they never know forgiveness, and they're removed from the land. The hope of circumcised hearts is not that you demonstrate to God some sort of legalistic perfect righteousness, but that the Lord would gather you. 
The hope of a circumcised heart is that the Lord would forgive you and restore you, first of all, to this, a love of him for the first time ever. That's the whole point. When you begin to suffer the real consequences of a disobedience to the way of the Lord, and your suffering shocks you awake with the reality of your waywardness, and you realize, I did this. And you remember the Lord, and you cry out to him for grace because you remember the day of atonement. I want to pause for a moment. There's something very practical. It's not in the main point of the text, but it's here. I want to pause for a moment and say that this pattern of blessing, curse, and redemption plays out not only on a grand scale, but on a very personal scale. There are many of you here that this is your story. You know God's blessing, and you know God's curse, and you know a transformed heart. Hallelujah. What a Savior. You've experienced all that wandering, and you've experienced that transforming grace. And I also know this, there are many here who are raising children who have wandered far off. They knew blessing of a rightly ordered home. Your home wasn't righteous, we all know that. It wasn't some sort of righteous utopia, but there was a right sort of order that was revealed in God's covenants. You knew the way of God's command and you knew that you fell short and you knew repentance and you remembered atonement in Christ and you rested upon his grace to atone not only for the sins of your children, but for you most of all. And your children grew up in that blessing. So many of you have faithfully given your, te- your children that very testimony of God's covenant design of blessing, curse, and redemption. It's a beautiful way. The only way in which we walk is through repentance and through redeeming grace, and yet your child has still wandered off. And your child has begun to experience each in his own way, each one uniquely so who wanders, some sort of curse of exile from God's good presence. And, and the blessing of God's covenant design, blessing, curse, redemption. I want you to hear in this moment the redemptive grace of this passage. Look at 31 and 2 again. And when all these things come upon you, son, and when all these things come upon you, daughter, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations to which the Lord has driven you, and return to the Lord your God. Brothers and sisters, this is the story of the prodigal son, isn't it? It's when we've wandered so far and recognized that we are in a land of curse far from God that God does the work in the heart to remind us of his goodness. I remember a note of blessing. One of the great debates about the scriptures is, is did they remember and believe before they returned? Or did they return because they remembered blessing and after returning God changed their hearts. I don't know. I'm still wrestling with that when I'm reading books and I'm reading the Bible, trying to figure it out. But I just know this. Lord calls us. And I pray with you. Will you ask your community group, will you ask your brothers and sisters, pray with you for your sons and your daughters. We yet live in a season of grace just a little while. This is our hope. 
Know this, the Lord with Israel grieved and longed for a wayward child. And he gives them this covenant and a call to return and a promise of a circumcised heart. The command is not too hard. We need to go to one other passage before we close. I encourage you, don't, don't just look at the, the passage on the screen behind me. Turn over to Romans, Romans chapter 10. And before you think, oh, this is where he just leaves behind all the context of where we were and just goes to the New Testament so he can preach the gospel. No, 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 we've been real clear. God has preached the gospel in Genesis 12. And you know what, Genesis 10, what Romans 10 is that we turn to now? It's a reflection on Deuteronomy 30. Look at verse five, Deuter- Romans 10 verse five. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. The shocking reality revealed in verse 30 is that the people don't do them and they won't live. And and Paul in Romans is calling this to mind. How, How will anybody be saved from the curse of sin when blessing seems just over the horizon? But I'm living in a land of curse, verse six and seven. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That's to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. Who will ascend? Who will descend? These are the images of an effort of a man striving for righteousness, much like the man who thinks he has to be extra spiritual and he creates a spiritual religion, or the man who thinks he has to exercise a feat of strength and he exercises a legalistic religion to go up to, go up to heaven, perhaps by some penance or descend, is to reject the reality of the gospel that's in Deuteronomy 30. Jesus is the one who has come down from heaven. Jesus is the one who has triumphed, exercising that great feat of strength. Righteousness is the result of God's work, not ours. Verses eight and nine. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and on your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Blessing, curse, salvation. What remains for us, where the heights of heaven are too high for us to obtain and where we can never triumph over death by some feat of strength, there is a word that is near our mouth and our heart. What remains for us who have received the word of Christ is to believe. Verses nine and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The confession is for everyone. There's not one way for the Jew and another for the Gentile. There is one way and one Lord. There is one way of faith in that one atoning name. The call has always been a call to faith, even for that young man or woman in Moab. You're a sinner. You and I both know it. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, and you will be saved. 
Now, there's one more application that's fascinating to me. Moses in Deuteronomy and Paul in Romans says that the word is near you. Like the word is near you right now. I can see it. It's happening. You have heard the word. It's near you, the gospel word and the call to faith. But this is only so if you've heard the word, Romans 10, 14. How then will you call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Do you hear the application? We tend to be good at proclaiming our own self-righteousness. I heard the word this Sunday. I believed. I managed to get it right like two days in a row. (laughs) We're good at proclaiming our own self-righteousness, but have we become those who lay down our own hope in ourselves and can bring news of righteousness, of faith that the world has not heard or believed? This is the call of Romans, not only to believe, but to proclaim that the word that came near to you would come near to others. And in this way, we love the Lord, our God, and we can love our neighbor as ourself. In a moment, we're gonna pray. And I do pray this morning, as the word has come near to you, that you would repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. There's no other application point for you than that. That you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart in the gospel of Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Second, that I will pray. I will pray that God will bring the word that he has brought near to you even this morning through you to those who have not yet heard. Do you believe that? Do you know that there are people who know the blessing and the curse? They're still sitting on on the, the throne of their own heart, but they know it's all disordered all around them, and they still sit there, and they're trying to fix it themselves. And the word has not come near. And by the word that you preach, God will do a miracle. It won't be you. You're like, I'm scared. I know, that's okay. You're not gonna do it. God will circumcise that heart. God will make his covenant with that soul. They're gonna believe. They'll believe and so be saved. And the third thing that I'll pray for, just yesterday morning, I spent from from morning till evening in Deuteronomy 30 after spending all of the week in Deuteronomy 30. I was conscious all day that my first thoughts in the morning actually weren't Deuteronomy 30. But rather, I woke to news of war in the very land about which we read today, a war in Israel. But as I, I read and what I saw in Israel yesterday, it's horror and it's tragedy. Full stop. It's disorder, and it's death, and I long for it to cease. Do you? And as I spent the entire day in reflection on the covenant of God with Israel, I was reminded over and over again that the hope of Israel is not some sort of end to war nor pushing back of an enemy. Deuteronomy 30 holds out that the hope of Israel is a circumcised this is the word that was near to Israel on, in Deuteronomy 30. And this is the word that has come to us. The hope of all the families of the earth is that God would redeem. And how? How? This is what struck me. 
How has that word come to us? Is it not because Abraham heard the gospel in God's covenant to him and he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness? Is it not because Moses recorded God's covenant in this book so that it was handed down to us? Is it not these Jewish men, priests, and prophets throughout history, every generation who have remembered God's covenant and called all of the people to repent and believe? And is it not because those Jewish apostles brought the word near, both to Jew and to Gentile, about the true Israelite, Jesus, the Messiah? This is the hope for which we pray for Israel and all peoples, that by grace, through no merit of our own, the word has come near to you. That our prayer and our labor is that that word would again come near to Israel and to the surrounding nations and to the ends of the earth. Lord, we pray Would you preserve life? Would you begin that this morning? That you would bring salvation and redemption to a life in this room. That you would grant a love for you. A confession of faith. That that soul may live. Lord, we ask for life. That we would see death and disorder around us and we would not sit and tweet about it. We would not sit and complain about it, but we would go that the word would be brought near. And Lord, we pray for life. Life all through an area at war. We pray for restoring of order. We pray for peace. And above all things, we pray that your word would draw near to all who dwell in and around the land of Israel and that you would bring your word near to the ends of the earth. Circumcise every heart, we pray. We pray that because it's what you do, that all would love the Lord, their God, and live. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in that name. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.